0: Good morning Church family. Uh, You'll have to forgive the extras. Uh, I have been battling a cold the last couple of days and while I did think it would be very funny to call Pastor Larry randomly on Friday uh, and tell him he has to cover for me, I decided that I was going to do it instead. Uh, So I've, I've taken some medicine, had my emergency. Uh, this is peppermint tea. You could hit me with a truck and you wouldn't knock me over at this point. Um, but Don't say that. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, the, it's been, a, it's been a, a good week and uh, I, am, I, am, I do think I am coming out of it. But if I do sound sick, that's why. Additionally, when I'm in the back, instead of shaking hands, uh, the most I'll do is give you a fist bump or a wave uh, just to try and keep whatever I have from spreading because uh, I do not want that to happen. Now, uh, you can open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. Uh, This is where we're going to start, but it is not where we're going to end. And two factors in my own life uh, led me to the sermon for today uh, as I was pondering on what to preach on. Uh, Every time I have the opportunity to preach, I run through a couple of different ideas that I've had, both from my own uh, personal Bible study, uh, perhaps things that I've heard in uh, my own college courses uh, from Pastor Larry, while I'm teaching Bible class, while we're doing uh, youth group or Sunday school. And what brought me to the the theme of this message, the passage of wisdom, is largely two things. Uh, First, I'm a dad now. Uh, My son is in the nursery and he, is, he turned seven months old on Tuesday, so he's growing up pretty quick. And second, uh, I am in college again. For those of you that may not know that, I am working on my master's degree through Cairn Online. And my semester just started this week, and it's the cu- class I'm currently in is Psalms and Wisdom Literature. And so we are going over um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and all of those books, which I really, really enjoy. Uh, Actually, the Lord worked it out so that not only did college start for me this week when I was supposed to preach, uh, I also started teaching youth group again this week because we were doing testimonies previously. I also had to do chapel this week for school on top of all of the other teaching that I do throughout the school week, and it's the week that I start teaching Sunday school, which I had done this morning before the lesson as well, and then I got sick. So I'm here, by the grace of God, and I want to make something clear for the message up front. The, the primary focus of this message is looking at the transmission of wisdom from one generation to the next. The wisdom that we're going to see that's being transmitted in the example is wisdom that has to deal with uh, sexual morality or sexual ethics, but that's not the main point. Yes, it's very good advice and you should absolutely take it, but the main point of the message is to showcase how wisdom is passed. And the example that I'm going to be using is two sets of fathers and sons, David to Solomon, and then Solomon to his son, Rehoboam. And what we're going to see is that the responsibility of the previous generation is to pass godly wisdom to the next generation. And so hopefully you're in 2 Samuel 11 by now, and we're going to start with our first father in the set, King David. And I'll be reading verses 1 to 5. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now, in the course of David's life, this is generally agreed to be the worst moment in David's life. He sees a beautiful woman. He's told that she is the wife of another man. He completely ignores that, and he commits adultery. And the rest of the chapter tells us how this plays out for him. In an attempt to cover up his sin, he tries to get Bathsheba's husband home, Uriah. Now, Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. Uh, There's a list of them given in 2 Samuel 23. I won't turn there, but things that you should know about these mighty men. These were select men within David's military that had leadership positions. In fact, some of them, not Uriah, but some others, had advisory roles to the commander-in-chief. They were the, the top guys in the military that were giving the strategy on how to take such and such a city, win such and such a battle. These were, as far as we can tell based on scripture, some of David's closest allies and strongest supporters, and in a lot of cases, best friends. This is Uriah's wife Bathsheba that he's just committed adultery with. And Uriah is one of his mighty men. And so David calls Uriah home from the battlefield. And what he's hoping will happen is that while Uriah is in Jerusalem, he will go home. And then when it turns out, when it's found out Bathsheba is pregnant, everyone will think, oh, it's because Uriah was home. And no one will suspect a thing. Jump to verses 10 and 11. So he tries to get Uriah to go down to his own house. Uriah does not. Verse 10. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab, that's the commander of Israel's armies, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Which, by the way, is exactly what David did. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Something that David wasn't accounting on was that Uriah was more righteous than he was. Uriah will not go back to his house to enjoy the pleasures of being at home because the ark And Israel's armies are out fighting in the field. How on earth could I go enjoy those pleasures when all of my brothers in arms are out fighting? And like I said, David didn't seem to have a problem with eating and drinking and sleeping with Uriah's wife because Uriah is more righteous than David. And so David tries again, verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called to him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. David's plan isn't working. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him, so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Job kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And this is where adultery leads to murder. David has decided that he's going to have Uriah killed and he's going to have him killed by the hands of Ammon. And he sends the letter commanding Joab to kill Uriah by the hand of Uriah, which also goes to Uriah's righteousness and that he did not look at what he was taking. And Uriah dies by the sons of Ammon. And Bathsheba mourns for the loss of her husband. And then when her period of mourning is over, David marries her while she's still pregnant. And now all is well. Right? The next chapter tells us how God thinks of David's sin. Because David, it appears from the text, didn't think too much of it. And I'm just going to read a longer section of it. And it does a very good job of explaining itself. So 2 Samuel 12, to 15. Then the Lord said to, sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. The consequences of David's sin, and the Lord considers it a very grievous sin, is twofold. One, the child is going to die. And two, the sword will never depart from David's house. And we won't read all the passages because we don't have the time for it. But to give you a brief rundown of the upcoming chapters. By the end of this chapter, uh, the child that Bathsheba and David have is born and then he dies. And then they mourn for him. And the next child that David and Bathsheba have is Solomon. What comes in the next chapter, chapter 13, is one of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar then tells her full brother Absalom, one of David's sons, and Absalom, for two years, festers in hatred towards Amnon that results in the murder of Amnon. Absalom will then flee as a fugitive for two years before being invited back, and he will not be able to see his father, David, for a few more years. Once he is returned back into David's presence, Absalom is going to start a rebellion that's going to lead into civil war, and the civil war will only end once Absalom is killed, and Absalom is killed against David's wishes. The civil war calms down. It briefly reignites involving more war and more death before things seem to smooth over. And then David gets old and the question of succession comes up. And one of David's sons, Adonijah, thinks that he is going to be the next king of Israel. This is now in 1 Kings chapter 1. And this is now a threat to Solomon's life because Solomon's also a claimant to the throne. And so if Adonijah becomes king, chances are Solomon's going to get killed, but Solomon is the one that the Lord has chosen to be David's successor, and so David makes that declaration. David dies, and one of Solomon's very first actions as king, 2 Kings chapter 2, is to put to death his brother Adonijah. The sword does not depart from David's household. All this because David gave into temptation because the temptation was very beautiful. To return back to the chronology, Solomon then becomes king. He puts to death a few other people, by the way, very early on in his reign. But he becomes king, he builds the temple, he dedicates it. And throughout this, the Lord comes to him in a dream and offers him one thing. I will give you anything that you ask for, any one thing. It is the closest thing to a wish that we have in all of Scripture. And Solomon, as we all know asked asks for wisdom. He asks for an understanding heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. He asks for wisdom because Solomon is young and God's people are numerous. And it so pleases the Lord that Solomon asks for wisdom that alongside wisdom, he gives him a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, wealth and power and prestige and all of these things. And Solomon throughout his time and the rest of history becomes known for his wisdom As the wisest man who ever lived. And Solomon eventually has sons of his own, and his successor is going to be a a boy by the name of Rehoboam. But at this point in the chronology, Solomon's no longer a young man. Solomon is now an established king. He's world renowned not just for his wisdom, but also for his wealth and for his power. He writes different books of the Bible, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and a few of the Psalms. And Proverbs is where we're going to focus. So you can flip to Proverbs, because now we're focusing on Solomon to Rehoboam. And we're going to start in Proverbs 1, and we're going to jump through the first few chapters of the book of Proverbs So Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and then we'll jump to chapter 2, and then we'll jump to chapter 3. So Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, this is Solomon talking to Rehoboam, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. If you jump to Proverbs 2, starting in verse 1, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2 My son, do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Something that should be one of the basic truths about the book of Proverbs is that it's a book of wisdom. It is filled with various general truths of life that have been observed by Solomon. And on top of that, it is inspired scripture. And so the wisdom that it has for us is brought under the umbrella of how to live righteously or in obedience to God. And at this point, in talking about Proverbs, I want to, I want to bring up two things about it. One, if you read a lot of the Proverbs, they're very earthly-minded. Here and there, there are reminders of the Lord and of how you are to act because of the Lord. But largely, the Proverbs are just wisdom on how to live here on earth. There's proverbs on how to invest, how to take on debt, when to take on debt. There's proverbs on marriage partners. There's proverbs on being in a marriage. There's proverbs on raising children. There's proverbs on work and work ethic. And while it is all under the umbrella of this is how you live wisely in obedience to the Lord, when you take the proverbs by themselves, it's a lot of just practical wisdom on how to live life here with the other people that you interact with. And the second thing I want to bring up about wisdom is that Old Testament wisdom is the equivalent to New Testament spiritual maturity. In the New Testament, what you see a lot of in different phrases uh, is spiritual maturity, or being like Christ, or growing in your faith. And all of these phrases point To the same goal, to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, to live righteously. For the believer, that begins with salvation, and it ends when you die, and then you get to enjoy the eternal rewards and riches of heaven. And in between there, as Paul will encourage us, we're encouraged to run the race, 1 Corinthians 9. The writer of Hebrews will tell us to run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12. And so we understand spiritual maturity as New Testament believers. Old Testament wisdom is the equivalent of it. The main difference is that Old Testament wisdom is very practical. Old Testament wisdom almost entirely has to deal with how you should do things. Doing things in obedience to what the Lord has declared to be right. It is a common caricature that the wise person is the guy sitting up on the mountaintop stroking his beard. right? He's just sitting there contemplating life. That is the exact opposite of what biblical wisdom is, according to the Old Testament. The wise person is shown to be wise in how they live their life. And so wisdom literature is all, especially Proverbs, is all about what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to live? How are you supposed to interact with other people, with this situation, with that situation, while bringing it under the umbrella of living a life that pleases the Lord? The wise person is shown to be wise by how they live. And Solomon, all the way back when he got his wish, was given a wise heart. A wise heart that was very quick to pick up on instruction and on teaching. And one of the sources that Solomon got his wisdom from is found in Proverbs 4, verses 1 to 4. "'Hear, O sons, the instruction of a Father, and give attention that you may gain understanding.' For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, which, by the way, David and Bathsheba are his parents, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. And so what we see as Solomon is speaking to Rehoboam to listen to a father's instruction, Solomon is also saying, hey, you want to know where I got this wisdom from? Grandpa. I got it from Grandpa Dave. He is the one who imparted instruction. He is the one who imparted wisdom to me that I am now imparting to you. And so what David learned, both from his successes and his miserable failures, as we have read, He passed on to Solomon. David failed with Bathsheba, but he learned from that mistake. You see that in 2 Samuel 12, and you see that in Psalm 51. You see David as a man after God's own heart. Because the second he was confronted with his sin, he repented. Unlike, say, King Saul, when we were together last time, who passed the blame. Uh, David was very quick to repent of that sin. And so David, having failed, but learning from it, is passing wisdom, not just in regards to sexual morality, but other areas of life, to his son in hopes that Solomon won't repeat his mistakes. Now, if you know how the story of Solomon ends, you know that not only does he repeat the mistakes, he multiplies the mistakes. But David, despite that massive failure with Bathsheba, still had a success. He passed his wisdom to his son Solomon. And Solomon now is passing his fatherly wisdom to his son Rehoboam. And here we see a father's warning. Now it's believed at the time of Proverbs, and you can flip to Proverbs 6, because that's where our final passage will be. But it's believed that Rehoboam, at the time of Proverbs, is a young man. He's probably in his late teens or early 20s. Uh, Most likely it's believed he's a man of marrying age. Because in the culture and in the day of uh, Solomon and Rehoboam, young men were married off as early as 16 or 17, uh, and young women were married off as early as 13 or 14. Uh, When you only lived 40 years, you got to it. Like You you married off uh, to make sure that you could have children and that you could have all of those blessings. So Rehoboam is a young man of marrying age. What would be... Temptation number one for a young man of marrying age in Rehoboam's position, do you think? And it has to do with what we looked at with Grandpa Dave. You can talk. Right, sexual immorality, girls, lust. This is going to be a big temptation for him, especially since Rehoboam's going to be king next. And so a lot of the advice that you find in Proverbs revolves around sexual morality, sexual ethics, what is okay and what is not okay, uh, what to cling to, what to avoid like the plague. And there's many passages that I could have gone to in Proverbs for that, but I've chosen Proverbs 6, uh, verses 20 and following. So Rehoboam, a young man, is going to be tempted by wisdom. No surprise then that Solomon, his father, is going to give him fatherly wisdom, both based on his own experiences, those that he's observed by others, and most likely also what he's learned from grandpa. And all of this, by the way, is divinely inspired wisdom. So it's it's even better wisdom because it's also the word of God. So verses 20 to 24 of Proverbs 6. My son... Observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So this is one of Solomon's paternal appeals, is what they're called. Uh, It is Solomon, as a father, appealing to Rehoboam to live wisely or spiritually mature. It is an appeal to observe the wisdom of mom and dad. And there's a bunch of different ways that Solomon talks about this. Uh, Listen to their teaching. Keep it close to heart. Let it guide you and protect you and instruct you and light the way of life for you. And this particular section of wisdom deals with adultery, of satisfying yourself with someone else's spouse, and more generally with lust. And so picking up in verse 24 and 25, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in, her heart, in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Something that is prevalent in the book of Proverbs is that temptation is not, presented as something that is hideous or atrocious to the one being tempted. And if we're honest with ourselves, temptation is never repulsive. If it was, it wouldn't be tempting. Uh, It wouldn't be temptation. So the adulteress has a smooth tongue. She sounds really good. She has her beauty. She has, as the NASB puts it, her eyelids, or the New English Translation puts it, her alluring eyes. Solomon, a father, is making it very clear to Rehoboam. The adulteress isn't something that's unattractive. She's very attractive. She looks good. She sounds good. It's alluring and it's tempting. If we go back to David, he saw Bathsheba bathing and she was very beautiful, not hideously disgusting. Temptation is attractive. And if we're honest with ourselves, the things that tempt us are attractive to us. If they weren't attractive, it wouldn't be tempting. And so Solomon is making that clear up front. She looks good. She sounds good. You'll want to give in to her, but... And here we get the rest of it, 26 to 35. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy and rage is a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. My son, she looks good, she sounds good, but if you give in, things end very, very, very badly for you. And whenever I read this passage, I can't help but think of David and Bathsheba. Verse 26 tells us that it leads to poverty and a threat to your own life. Verses 27 to 29, to use a common phrase for us, talks about playing with fire. You can't put burning coals in your lap and not expect your clothing to come out unscathed. You can't walk on hot coals and not get burned. The same is true if you give in to this. There's going to be pain and punishment at the end of it verse 30 and 31 compares it to another sin, stealing. And at least the thief, if he's stealing because he has to stay alive, will, seek, will, will experience compassion. If he's caught, he will still suffer the full measure of the law, but people can understand when someone steals because otherwise they're going to die. That's not the case with adultery. What you get with adultery is is destruction and wounds and disgrace and reproach and you have to suffer under the merciless rage of the spouse that you have wronged. The spouse will be jealously enraged and there is no amount of gifts that you can give them to make them stop. To the young man Rehoboam, the attractive woman who wants to sleep with him is great. In fact, he may think it's one of the perks of being a king depending on how old you think Solomon is at this point because Solomon is not a great example of this but he is still imparting this wisdom that he's learned from Grandpa Dave, that he's learned from his own experiences, that he's learned from others' experiences, and he attempts to correct his son before his son has to make a decision. The adulteress seems attractive, but it is only pain on the other side of that act. Solomon, as a father, is doing his due diligence like David, Solomon's father, did. Because the responsibility of the previous generation is to pass godly wisdom to the next. David learned from his sin with Bathsheba. Again, 2 Samuel 12, Psalm 51. Both of those chapters deal directly with David's sin with Bathsheba. And it shows his repentant heart. It shows why he's called the man after God's own heart, even when he sins. And so David passed his fatherly wisdom to Solomon. And Solomon received that instruction with a wise heart. Solomon, now the wisest person to ever live, writes an entire book, Proverbs, imparting wisdom to instruct his son, Rehoboam, in how to live. And this is the mode of of instruction for wisdom literature. It's in the home. Solomon did not send Rehoboam off to the greatest school. Solomon did not get a tutor for Rehoboam to teach him wisdom. The way wisdom worked in the Old Testament is mom and dad pass it, on to, uh, pass it on to son and daughter. The previous generation pass it on to the next generation. And so my encouragements, and this is what we'll end with, my encouragements to parents and to grandparents, or more generally speaking, uh, to those of the previous generation, and I will let you make the call on whether you think you belong to that group or not, uh, is not to keep what you've learned to yourself. One of the graces of God that's often forgotten is that he can teach through even the worst circumstances. It is always better if you just didn't sin. That that is always the better option. But one of the oft-forgotten graces of God is that even when you do sin, he can use that opportunity to teach you. Sometimes we learn best, unfortunately, through pain and through consequence. But once he teaches you, that is not where the teaching should end. It's not just for you. The teaching is meant to be passed on to the next generation in the hopes that the next generation just avoids all the mistakes you made. In the hopes that the life that they live is more glorifying to God, more in obedience with his word, more wise than yours was. The wisdom that you have gained from experience here on earth is not meant to be kept to you. It is meant to be taught in a way that encourages righteous living and in a way that encourages wise living. And quite frankly, to those of you of the previous generation, and I guess technically, depending on how you define that, I'm now part of it because I have a son. What greater gift can you give to your children than what will reap eternal rewards for them? You can leave behind an inheritance. You can leave behind land and a house and a car and money and all these great, wonderful, earthly things that will eventually burn. But one of the things that you can give them that will reap eternal rewards is the encouragement to live wisely. Or, if you want me to use New Testament language, spiritually mature so that they are engaged less in sin and more in righteous living, so that they are stacking up eternal rewards for themselves, and so that they are a greater influence on the world around them. There is no greater gift that you can give them besides instruction for righteous living, besides wisdom. And as for the next generation, and in some ways I am also part of the next generation uh, because my parents are still alive. My grandparents are still alive. For those of you in my situation, whether you're 45, uh, whether you're five, receive that instruction. to, To pull straight from Scripture, verses 20 to 24, my son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. That's that's some of the best encouragement that I can give the next generation, whether you're an adult with your own children or whether you're a teenager or younger. While your parents are not always perfect, Solomon wasn't perfect. David wasn't perfect. I have the greatest set of parents the world has ever produced. Your parents are second place at best. All right, I'm just going to let you know that right now. My parents are not perfect, but they have done their due diligence in a lot of areas in passing wisdom down to me. And for those of you whose parents are still alive, whose grandparents are still alive, they have wisdom to give you on how to live righteously, on how to avoid the mistakes that they've made. Learn from them. It is far easier to learn from them now and just avoid the mistakes altogether than to have to deal with the mistakes and learn the hard way. And really, for those of you who consider yourself part of the next generation, and that should be most of you as well, what greater gift can you give to a parent than to live more like Christ? How can you make the next generation more proud than living, or the previous generation more proud than living more like Jesus Christ? both through the wisdom that they have given and through God's word. And so my encouragement to the previous generation, pass down the wisdom that you received. David did to Solomon. Solomon did to Rehoboam. And to the next generation, and you can be in both groups, it's okay. Listen to the previous generation when they give that godly wisdom and that righteous instruction. So that hopefully you don't commit the same sins like David and Solomon did. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that within it we see these dynamics of father and son. And we see the connection of history. And I thank you that within it, even when the failures are shown, that we also see the successes. I thank you that David was successful in teaching his son Solomon, as Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4. And I thank you that Solomon was successful in teaching wisdom to his son Rehoboam, as we see all throughout Proverbs. And I pray for everyone here, whether they are of the previous generation passing wisdom down, of the next generation receiving that wisdom, or of both engaging in both roles. I pray that they are not quiet about what they have learned from you from their good experiences and their bad experiences. I pray that they are willing to pass that wisdom down freely and liberally in a hope that the next generation will live even more for Christ and have an even greater impact on the world around us in your name. And I pray for the younger generation that you would give them listening ears. Help them to learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before us. Help us to learn from the victories of those who have gone before us that we may live more like Christ day in and day out, and that when we become part of the previous generation, we may pass that down and hopefully see generation after generation growing in wisdom and in righteous living in obedience to your word. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.